Here we go. All right, different Maybe format. Different format than yep. our typical shows. Yep. Uh, typically, when we do a show, we have an idea of what we're going to talk about, and we one of us will put together some notes, mm-hmm. and we'll just try and stick to that topic. Yeah. We don't always do a great job of sticking no. to that topic. It's more of a groping towards the end. Uh, so we're going to do a different kind of groping. <laughs> okay. We're going to grope through some uh, some listener questions. Yeah. Uh, friends who listened to the show saw that we on Facebook and, and Twitter asked for questions. Yeah. And so we got a kind of a grab bag of different topics we're going to deal with. Yeah. Got some Reese's, some fun size Snickers. Oh, a different grab bag. Okay. Different kind of grab bag. Okay. Nah, sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, BJ Strobel, big fan. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. He's, uh, he's He follows us on Facebook. Okay. BJ has a really interesting question, and he wrote this question in in short essay form. <laughs> Minimum 500 words. Right. And at the very end, he kind of got to the question. Okay. Um, basically, so, so here's his words. So I guess my question is... There you go. What does regeneration and walking by faith look like for believers pre-Christ yeah. and pre-Pentecost? Uh, so I think what, what BJ is trying to get to is, as believers on this side of the cross, so New Testament mm-hmm. era, uh, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and He is in us. And that is unique mm-hmm. to the New Covenant. Well, you say so. I say so. Yeah. I think the Bible says so. I do too, but... In the Old Covenant... So, us in the Bible. So, so us in the Bible. Anyone who cares to disagree. Uh, so, in the Old Covenant, though, in the, in the Old Testament, we see guys like David. Mm. Uh, you know, a man after God's own heart. What was the deal there? I mean, was the Holy Spirit with him in a different way? You know, how, how did that work? Yeah. So the, the question that BJ has, the, the question that he's asking is basically, how can people in the Old Covenant be regenerate and not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Uh, so the first thing, you, yes. Regenerate. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, regenerate, there's a lot of different language that the Bible uses to talk about this. Everything from Deuteronomy to the Gospel of John talks of what we would now call regeneration. Mm -hmm. It's when the Spirit of God uh, gives you life, the ability to see Jesus Christ as glorious and to believe. Not Old Covenant, I get it, Jesus wasn't there. But the ability to have faith, the ability to believe. God removes your stony heart and Mm -hmm. gives you a heart of flesh capable of uh, believing his promises, which leads to salvation. Yeah. So, yeah, are you going to say something? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's the question, is is how can someone be regenerate without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Uh, so the first thing you need to know, BJ, and everybody else who's listening, is that not all theologians disagree on this. And when disagree I say... Disagree or agree? Not, excuse me. They, not, they don't all agree on there this. It there it is. better. Thanks, man. Hey, look at us. That's We're working team. Uh, and when I say they don't all agree, I don't mean it's like a bunch of really bad dispensational theologians on one side and a, a whole bunch of really super awesome Hall of Fame theologians on the other side. I'm talking like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Wayne Grudem, D.A. Carson, uh, Leon Morris. They have all arrived at one of probably five different positions. Uh, if, if you don't know those names, these yeah. are really solid theologians. Yeah. Read their Bibles well. Yeah, understand the gospel very well. Yeah, and still yet come to different conclusions on this very question. That's right. Okay, and and the conclusions range from we think that uh, believers in the Old Testament uh, were regenerate and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
we think that believers in the Old Covenant were regenerate, but not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Um, we think that believers in the Old Covenant were not regenerate at all. Their, their faithfulness to the Lord was the result of something else. I would say that's probably the only untenable position. Yeah. But now that I've kind of just haphazardly given you the various options and some of the, you know, the guys who, I didn't even tell you who falls where because it's kind of not important. Uh, here's, here's what I think the biblical answer is. Um, I think believers, anyone who ever believes, anyone who ever is saved by faith alone is regenerate. Okay? I think you see that language from the very beginning of your Bibles to the old, I mean, to, all the way to the end. Well, that was a big gaffe. Um, you know, in Deuteronomy, you have this language of having your heart circumcised, mm-hmm. right? D- don't just circumcise yourselves, circumcise your hearts, right? And, and that's the language of regeneration. And, and anyone who ever believes uh, must be regenerate. The thing that's special about the new covenant is that every person who's in the covenant is regenerate. So in the old covenant, anyone who was saved had to be saved via... First, the the work of regeneration. But you could be a part of the Old Covenant without actually being regenerate. Right. Because not everyone in the Old Covenant was actually a believer. You had unbelievers mixed in. Paul talks about that in Romans. But in the New Covenant, every person who's a part of the covenant is regenerate. Right. So in the Old Covenant, you had sort of a national, ethnic, religious religious identity. And within that, there's always a remnant. There's always that, that... the spiritual remnant. The spiritual part of the covenant where we actually have you know, people whose hearts have been changed. That's right. Whose hearts have been circumcised. Yeah, but it's mixed with people who are nation- nationally and ethnically also children of Abraham. Right. But in the new covenant, when you're going to Jeremiah 31, How'd you know? the promise is different. I can find a page. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, so Jeremiah, very famous section of the book of Jeremiah, where he is talking about this promised new covenant. Uh, Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers (coughs) on the day when I took them by the hand. not like the old covenant. Not like the old covenant. So there is discontinuity there. Something is different. Okay. Uh, This is not like... See you through me. See you off. This is why Grant said I have to stop interrupting you. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Yeah. So this is not a promise that God is going to start regenerating people. Yeah. This is a promise that all of the people of this new covenant, this different covenant, this covenant that's different than the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that every person in this covenant is going to be regenerate. Right. They're going to have the law of God written on their hearts. From the least to the greatest. That is language that means regeneration. That's That's a changed heart. That's a heart that no longer desires Mm -hmm. sin and that desires the law of God. That's right. Which is a hallmark of being regenerate. Yeah. And And this has profound implications for everything from church membership to... Infant baptism, which is, you know, we should have done air quotes there. Okay, now, uh, the question is, well, what about indwelling? Mm -hmm. And this is where biblical theology is really, really helpful. 
Yeah. What's biblical theology? Well, a pocket-sized definition that we like to teach our members is it's the story of how we get from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. And you could say Revelation 22, but 1, 21... Yeah, so, so it's uh, it's the story of the Bible. So it's, it's looking at the Bible as one big book. That's right. But there's also the discipline of biblical theology, which allows you to trace certain themes throughout that main story of redemption. You kind of pluck the string all the way through. So in Sunday's sermon, I gave a biblical theology of the priesthood. Yeah. Right? I traced it, and I didn't do the whole one. The week before, I did a biblical theology of sacrifice, and I went from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 21. Right. Right. And so we trace that theme all the way through. You can do that uh, with the dwelling of the Spirit. Okay. So in the beginning, in the garden, God's presence was with Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Okay. But he didn't indwell Adam and Eve. He was present with them in the garden. Right. Okay. And then after the fall, they were sent out of the garden, sent away from the presence of the Lord. But then after that, the Lord's Spirit comes and dwells with his people in Mount Sinai, right? Uh, after that, in the once the people of Israel have been formed as they're traveling through the desert, the God's Spirit dwells with them in the tabernacle, right? Right, Which is like this temple on wheels kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then what happens next? And they build a real temple. Yeah. And then the Holy Spirit comes and indwells that temple. Yeah. And that took a very prominent role in the worship of uh, the people of Israel for a very long time. And then when Jesus Christ came, something very important happened. Uh, the Spirit of God came and dwelt amongst his people in the flesh. Right. Right. So we are now living stones, and the Spirit in us, we are all well, the you, You're jumping ahead. Okay. So so I'm just talking about the incarnation. Okay. Right? Oh, okay. Right, right. John chapter 1, he came and he tabernacled yes. among us, right? But then, after his death, burial, and resurrection... He gave us the Spirit, which now indwells us. Right, and that was Pentecost. Yeah, that's right. Acts chapter 2. In fulfillment of the prophet Joel chapter 2. You see yeah, 2-2. Two, two, huh? Pouring out of the Spirit that. on God's people. The Spirit yeah. indwells God's people, and now we are that temple in essence. Yeah, that's right. And so you see God's Spirit uh, being given in measure to people in the Old Testament in order for them to accomplish various things from artists doing phenomenal artistry, David going to battle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the thing that's significant about the New Covenant is that we have His Spirit indwelling in us. We are the temple. Mm-hmm. And then one day, in the consummation of all things, we'll dwell forever with Him in His forever temple, which is the new heavens and the new earth. All right. Yeah. So, BJ, if that's not enough of an answer... <laughs> if uh, that's not enough of an answer, you should go read Jim Hamilton's excellent book called The Indwelling presence or the indwelling spirit it'll just be, jim hamilton the indwelling something it'll be linked in the uh podcast yeah i, I really do think it's the yes it will i do think it's the most careful most robustly biblical treatment on the subject it's been forever since i've read it but i still think it's uh phenomenal better than anything i think you'll read in in uh systematic theology on the subject so next question Boom, we're moving right into it. Moving right along. We had, I want to say, like seven questions from a friend of mine named David Parham. Okay. He's a guy who I train with and just... Train? Train, jiu-jitsu. He chokes me regularly. That kind of stuff. Okay, go ahead. My other wrist. (laughs) Um, So he he asked a whole bunch of questions, and I tried to kind of find a common theme so that I wouldn't just... We just wouldn't turn this into the Parham show. Yeah. So there's... The common theme that I see in these questions is he's basically asking, look, God is all-powerful. He's all-good. He's all-knowing. 
-hmm. And then he's, he's taking observations that I think are good observations, true. And he's kind of trying to mesh that with his idea that God is all-powerful and all-knowing mm -hmm. and all-good. And, and logically, how does that make sense? Can you ask me his first question? Here we go. So he says, can God make a stone so heavy that he cannot lift it? And if he can't, does that mean God's not all-powerful? So does, basically he's saying, does God yeah. have limits? Because yeah. if he has limits like that, isn't, doesn't that mean that God's power is limited? And doesn't that challenge our very understanding of who God is? Right. Is it, you're asking me that? Mm, well, I, you I had that. a whole thing prepared. I was ready for it to say, I don't know, Russell, what do you think? Oh, but, thanks. Well, yeah. I guess I'll answer it. Yeah, go ahead. So, so the, the short answer is, yeah, I think God is limited in a sense. It's very apropos that you give the short answer. Short answer. Oh, I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. Thanks. No doubt. Uh, <laughs> so, God's limited in a sense. And what I mean by that is God's limitations are limitations that he sets upon himself by his own nature, mm -hmm. by his own attributes. And so, <coughs> in this particular example, we're talking about God doing something that's logically impossible. So, God's not going to make, make a, a, a stone heavier than God can lift. Because God can make anything and God can you know, move anything. And so logically, those two categories, it can't happen. Right. The same way God can't make a square circle. Definitionally, right. that's, right. that's a, that's a non-thing. So these rules of logic that we're running into, those rules of logic find their origin, find their yeah. ground in the nature and character of God. Yeah. So in the same way that God is perfectly good and therefore cannot sin, God is perfectly logical mm -hmm. and cannot lie. He right. cannot make a square circle. Um, and so we see this limitation is not the kind of limitation that we would typically think of as any lack of power, but it's a definitional limitation. Right. And, and you have to understand it that way in order to understand what's meant by something like all-powerful. Or, for example, all-knowing. All-knowing means God knows everything that there is to be known. Right. It doesn't mean God has some infinite well of knowledge that's endless. Um, it, may, it may very well be that yeah. from our point of view. But it means, logically, he knows everything there is to be known. Yeah. Um, God's power is, to, I mean, we can say he's all-powerful, and that means he can do anything that is logically possible for him to do. Yeah. This, can God create a stone so heavy he can't lift it? it it's like asking if God knows the answer to an unanswerable question. Yeah. You know, it's just logically the question itself doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so if you ask illogical questions, you're going to get... Pretty, pretty predictable answers. Right. Um, now, I would add to this. Okay. And I would say that, you know, somebody like Parham, who I know he's asking these questions because he's generally, he's genuinely wrestling with this. And he's kind of curious, like, well, how can I answer that? You're going to find people who don't believe that God's all-powerful, who don't believe in God or say they don't, mm -hmm. who are challenging this Christian view of God and they're using these sort of logical... Uh, booby traps. Booby traps. They're, yeah. they're gotcha questions. Yeah. Like, oh, I gotcha. God can't be all-powerful. God can't be all good and allow evil in the world. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Um, what we need to come back around to always is that the unbeliever who's challenging the logic of our understanding of God is using logic. Yeah. And logic is incoherent unless you assume God exists. So what I mean by that is we have these universal, immaterial, binding laws of how we should think. <coughs> right? Yeah. So the law of non-contradiction. Can't be A and not A at the same time. Yeah, there it is. So that law of non-contradiction is not a physical thing. And yet it's a rule that even the unbeliever recognizes, I have to stick to that rule if I want to arrive at truth. 
And he's holding that rule up against God. Well, where does that rule come from? If atheism is true, and you're going to stand in the atheist point of view and look out at the world, this is a purposeless, unguided universe of cosmic chance, and there is no accounting for immaterial rules about how clumps of stardust like us should have to think. Mm -hmm. Now, the atheist may say, well, it's just sort of a social construct. You know, we come up with these rules of logic because they help us, help us do things. Well, if it's a social construct, if it's just like driving on the right side of the road instead of the left, well, why do I have to pay any attention to it? Can't I just have a different social construct that says, well, actually, you can be A and B at the same time. Yeah. There's no truth to that anymore. It just becomes sort of a preference or a cultural custom. Yeah. And none of us think of logic that way. We all recognize that logic is a rule that you have to follow if you want to arrive at truth. Yeah. And the only accounting for that is standing on the foundation of God as that rule giver, thinking God's thoughts after him, mm -hmm. being logical as God is logical. So, kind of going back to the original point here, the atheist who's using logic to argue against God, it's just like if you were to get on Facebook and get into like a furious Facebook debate with someone over the existence of the internet. Mm. You can come up with some really great arguments for why the internet's just an illusion, but you're still on Facebook. You're using the internet to argue that the internet's not there. Can we unhinge this? Is it something going wrong here? No, I just I want to do a mic drop. Oh. But I can't I can't drop. It's too heavy. Can you do a mic drop? Okay. Oh. Sorry. We don't have the finances for that, sir. I didn't realize it'd be so easy. Yeah, to over. wow, okay. So, no, uh, that's, but that's a phenomenal illustration. Yeah, it's exactly right. If you're going to use logic and you're going to appeal to those rules of logic, you got to have a worldview that makes sense of them. And the yep. Christian worldview is the only one that does. Yep. All right. Uh, next question. This is from our uh, number one fan. Jake Korn. Pastor Jake Korn out of uh, Switzerland. He's in Switzerland? No, he's in Florida. But, he's, but his church is Switzerland Community Church. Culturally, very similar. Very similar. Weather, not so much. Okay. So Jake asks, I think this is an interesting question. Can elders mm. in a church stop being elders? And he says specifically, can elders stop being elders without moral failure? Uh, Mortal failure? Moral. Okay. Moral infraction. Yeah. Kind of character flaws yeah. or faults that we would see, you know, a church scandal and some elder steps down because he's done something you know, really sinful. Yeah. What if that doesn't happen? Can an elder just step down? That's yes. his question. Do you want to repeat that? Yes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, hey, Presbyterians would disagree with us. Presbyterians would say that if you're an elder, you're an elder for life unless you disqualify yourself. Uh, in practice, I'm a little uncertain about how that kind of works itself out because, you know, if you go from one presbytery to another presbytery, you have to be recognized by that next presbytery. And it's like, well, I mean, if he's an elder for life, but I get it. They would say, we're not making him an elder again. We're merely recognizing him and we want right. to go through. Okay, I, yeah, I, grant, I grant that. Mm -hmm. uh, I would disagree with that. I, and not because the Bible says so anywhere explicitly. I just think it, it's, it's, it's implicit from an understanding of what an elder is and how you recognize an elder. An elder is someone who is recognized by the people to be equipped for the work of shepherding. And... Uh, and so, and you're recognized by the local body, right? There's not some hierarchical system right. where some group of uh, super elders or hyper elders or, you know, elders who have a little extra seasoning on them uh, get to pick who's the elder. And so they can kind of decide for you to be an elder. No, the congregation chooses who the elder is. So, for example, Russell, if you end up leaving Sixth Avenue Church of God, 
you don't get to take your elder badge with you. You have to turn your elder badge and gun into me and the congregation before you go. We really do carry guns. Yeah. Uh, our Bibles, our spiritual gats. That's right. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably the most common way yeah. that somebody would cease to be an elder, especially in our transitory society. They would just leave their church. And, and that's, but that's not just a function of the autonomous local congregation. What's not? Well, so I think seeing an elder stepping down mm. for reasons other than more. Well, I was going to get to that. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. So the number one main reason is, I think the most common reason is that people move. Right. But another reason why somebody may step down and stop being an elder. Well, look at the qualifications for being mm-hmm. an elder. Those qualifications can be more or less available in the life of someone who is pastoring church. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, or, you know, you can just, I mean, there's any number of reasons why a person can stop being an elder. We had a brother in our church, uh, amazingly, just kind of after really considering the weight of what it means to be an elder and the qualifications of being an elder decided that he didn't feel called to do that. Mm-hmm. And so he he just stepped down. He said, yeah, I just don't, I don't think this is what the Lord is. I don't think I'm meant to be an elder. Which which was an incredible model of oh, humility. Oh, incredible. And, yeah. and, and At I, just the right time in the life of our church. I think so. Yeah. So, it, But let's say the elder has all the qualifications. Yep. and just hits a season in yeah. his life yeah. where well, I can't... I can't faithfully shepherd my congregation and take care of my family, yeah. whatever it may be. An elder should be hospitable. Mm-hmm. But maybe an elder has a, a teenager who is just going absolutely off the rails. And it is just consuming every second of his time. I don't know, somebody might say, well, that that might disqualify you. but right. Or or an exceptionally sick child, right? Yeah. And it's just like, you know what? I just don't have the time or the energy right now. I just need to focus on my family. Yeah, I just can't do it. And yeah, they step down. That's right. And, yeah. and, and I think some would maybe say, well, he can keep the title and just not be an elder right now. Yeah. I think that comes more from an honorific culture than it does from the Bible. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, additionally, we have it worked into... Now, this is just practically. We have it worked into our constitution at, at our church that a person serves as an elder for three years. Mm-hmm. They'll take a year-long sabbatical. Then they'll serve uh, if they get... Then they'll serve for another three years. And then they'll roll off. And, yeah, I think that's just kind of a check and balance to make sure that we don't have these lifelong elder positions as if you're a nominee of the Supreme Court. Right. You know. Uh, but then you could very easily come back on and be reelected. So it's not like we're trying to keep them. It's not like you do three, one, three, and now you're off forever. It's just, it's just we want to make sure that we don't have people permanently occupying these seats as elders. Give me a 20-second kind of admonition, warning to, to someone who might be in a church where there's this lifelong elder just never going to lose his position? Uh, you know, it, it really could. It just depends on the situation. It could be, in, by God's grace in the life of this church, that your lifelong elder is a phenomenal elder and yeah. that your church is flourishing. I would still say uh, that if you have a chance to change that, you should, because if you have an elder who is not as godly as he ought to be, and is leading your church uh, not as well as he possibly could be, you're really setting your your church up for failure in the long run. Here's how I think about it. Um, as, okay, you give your answer. Let me give the good answer. As as the church, yeah. one of the greatest threats that will always be there is the, the threat of a loss of the gospel mm-hmm. and a threat of hypocrisy and sin creeping into the life mm-hmm. of the church and as many safeguards as we can possibly put yeah. in the life of the church. To prevent that, the better. I yeah. think one of those safeguards is 
always kind of routinely turning over the, the elders and <laughs> giving them a break and reassessing <coughs> their lives and their yeah. qualifications. Yeah, absolutely, bro. Yeah, you said you, you, you should have just answered that from the first place. You, you, that's the phenomenal answer. Books you should read? Oh, we're not going to do the, the other question about... Oh, we are way over. Okay, oh. all right. What do you got? Oh, Ooh, what do you got? The whole Christ. All right, so get out of here, Bible. Mm. Get in here, Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book here not long ago. Uh, Endorsed by Kevin DeYoung. Endorsed by Kevin DeYoung and... Derek Thomas. Alistair Begg, if you like accents. David Wells. So this book... Um, Michael Horton. Basically covers... It's a historical analysis of okay. the Marrow controversy. And if you haven't heard of that, the book will tell you all about it. I'm not going to elaborate on it. Well, but what it does is it... Is, is in a way that I haven't seen anyone else do. Ferguson gets to the heart of what antinomianism, lawlessness, and legalism, sort of the salvation by works, we'd say, what those really are and how fundamentally they are both the same misunderstanding of the gospel. So we sometimes think of you know, lawlessness, cheap grace, antinomianism is over here, and legalism is over here. And if I have somebody who's just a little too far to this side, well, I need a little more legalism to balance them out. Well, he points out that that's just adding the same error from a different point of view mm. to a believer or yeah. to your preaching or to your church. He does a phenomenal job of walking through that. Um, and he also really does a great job of grounding the blessings of the gospel and the promises of the gospel mm. in Christ. So not as Christ is the way I get that stuff, but they are through Christ and we are in Christ as believers. And the way he expounds on that through this book is so helpful. And uh, I, I would highly recommend it to anybody Who's, who's got an interest in those subjects. Yeah, and uh, Tim Keller says that it is illuminating and compelling. Are you just reading, just reading the back of the book? Let's do this. Yeah. Did you read it yet? No. Okay, you should. Okay. Books you should read. Yeah, you know what? Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book on the Holy Spirit that was so dry. I know everybody loves it. It's everybody's favorite book on the Holy Spirit, but it was so dry, I, I thought maybe the Spirit wasn't happy with it. And so I'm a little gun-shy. <laughs> But I'll go for it, sure. That, hey, strong recommendation. I'll yeah. take it. All, all right. That's all we have for today's episode. Uh, follow us on iTunes, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. I'm Sean DeMars. I'm Russell Berger. Thanks for listening. Yeah. I gotta figure out some way to sign off, man. I gotta get a I gotta get a thing.